Welcome to Season 3 of the Filament Games Podcast, a show dedicated to game-based learning. Here are your hosts, Brandon Pitzer and Dan Norton. Good morning, everybody. Welcome, welcome to the first retro review of season three. Hooray. Yay. So if you missed the fun last season, uh, go back and check out our recap of Carmen Sandiego, Math Blaster, and Oregon Trail. We have consolidated the audio version for you, but if you'd like to see us play through the game, just head on over to our YouTube channel, that's the Tube of Views, and check out the video playthrough. Uh, So uh, as the intro said, we have me, Brandon Pitzer, and Dan Norton. That's me. We also have a third human. His name is Matt Hazelton. Hello. He joins us for the retro review because he's a game designer, and it was his idea to do the retro review. So, <laughs> so here he is. A lengthy list of qualifications. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> your, your resume unfurls. <laughs> um, so, uh, but before we get into the content proper, I have a question. I think I'm going to start with Matt. Actually, I would like to know what are you playing. Oh, uh, I mean, there's only one answer for that right now, and that is The Witcher Three. Because uh, I've been playing that for the past month, and we'll probably be playing it for uh, many more months. All right. Have you like gotten to the DLC yet, or are you I just am. still I, on the? I'm uh, in the the final DLC, and I'm really trying to savor it. Um, I think the interesting thing about this game is like I'm a completionist, so anytime I try to do a game like this, I'm like, well, there's three games. You got to start with one. Uh, oh, so this is like the, okay. the capstone in a, a very oh. long project for me. So when did you start? Uh, I probably cracked open The Witcher 1 in uh, 2007. <laughs> it's been a decade. <laughs> yeah, it's been a decade in the making. I, I didn't particularly care for it. You've uh, been so playing I, that entire time. <laughs> I shelved it, but I've just heard so many, uh, as it turns out, very deservedly good things about The Witcher 3. And I was like, all right, well, I, I have to get into this. And if I want to really appreciate the story, I have to like know everything that came before. Um, and uh, it's been awesome. Very cool. Yep. Excellent. How about you, Norton? What are you up to? Uh, I'm sorry, Brandon. I'm playing Heroes of the Storm. <laughs> That's okay. You don't have to apologize to me, man. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I know I, I play a lot of Blizzard stuff, but they... Uh, but they make fine games. They make fine games. So and what's it, going on in Heroes of the Storm? Uh, they've had this, uh, for a month now, a quest series to unlock a whole bunch of cool cool mounts and special banners and it's it's a cross promotion with Overwatch. All right. So you unlock Overwatch stuff at the same time. Mhm. Uh so I've been playing that with some coworkers and friends and uh and that's been Ooh, and I'm not neither of those groups. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to play Overwatch? I don't actually. All right, I was yeah. going to say cuz you're about to strike a bargain you may may regret. Yeah, that's true. I yeah. Not, right. a, not a mobile guy. Yeah. I um I was having an interesting conversation uh with one of our coworkers that I'm playing with, mm-hmm. uh, and she mentioned the the remake of StarCraft that has uh, been made recently, uh, like a yeah. StarCraft classic. And I realized that you know I think actually the smooth shininess of Heroes of the Storm as a MOBA that more or less distills everything I like in an RTS. Like oh sure. In an RTS, usually what I do is I sort of obsessively try and work my way up to building the coolest units mm-hmm. I stockpile until I have overwhelming force. Yeah. And that doesn't usually work against human opponents. Usually they come no. by with 
They do the Blitzkrieg you know, they thing. They have six Zerglings right out of the gate, and they yep. just wreck your things. And you're like, but I <laughs> just want to build my infrastructure. I was base building. Yeah. And uh, so MOBAs kind of are like, well, you get the really coolest unit right away. Sure. Uh, you still get to you still have little guys and overwhelming force is still a thing. Uh, so one you know so I don't know. Here's the storm is really scratching uh, scratching the itch. Sweet. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. How about you, sir? I'm playing a little bit of Ori in the Blind Forest Definitive Edition. Definitive. You, you've played yeah. the less definitive edition. Right? I played the less definitive. So edition. you were actually replaying a game. I am because it's really good. Oh. It's just like one of the best platformers ever played. What's so good about it? It has like the feel, I, I would say, like outside of any platform I've ever played is just so like tight and responsive. It just has, yeah, it just has an amazing feel. It's kind of an, kind of hard to encapsulate, but yeah, it's, you just have to try it out for yourself. It's amazing. What's, what's new in the definitive edition? They just added some new areas and stuff just, mm. and, and the game, in general is like stunningly beautiful i was talking to um steven the new qa guy and he just uh, about it yesterday and he described it as just very juicy and i think that (laughs) that that's true it just has tons of juice and polish Mm -hmm. just every pixel animating beautifully so so yeah highly recommend that game it's real good um speaking of good games we just played one yeah we did it was called Manhole. Yeah. It's a game from uh, ancient times. <laughs> yes. Um, and, uh, yeah, we just played through the video of it. Um, and I guess Dan was at the at the wheel, so I want to know what your thoughts were going through it and kind of how the experience may have changed for you since when you played way back in the day. Yeah, I played it in fourth grade. And how old does that make you? Uh, uh, I was young. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was a long time ago. Um, like eight or nine. Yeah, it was interesting to see like which old uh, neurons like refused, being like, "Oh, <laughs> oh, go click that thing." <laughs> like there was some of the little teeny Easter eggs and uh, things actually stuck with me. So that was kind of uh, surprising that my brain has decided to store that mm-hmm. since the fourth grade. Well, which is kind of interesting when you think about games writ large as being a medium for learning things, right? Like mm-hmm. the fact that there is in fact like information that your brain just absorbed through the act of playing that is somehow uh, perfectly regurgitated mm-hmm. you know, decades later. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was, there's a website uh, that I can't remember the name of where people can draw maps of, for, like, from memory of video game levels, and everyone is able to, like, perfectly recreate, you know, episode one, mission one of Wolfenstein, or, like, mm-hmm. the King's Quest, sure. or, like, dungeon, or something mm-hmm. like that. Oh, yeah, there's that secret room in mm-hmm. the Wolfenstein. Yeah, where you get the machine gun. Yeah. Yeah. So, That's true. So how would you describe this game? I, as I was watching you play through it, to me it was, it was really interesting because it's just such a, I don't know, there's a lot of ambiguity. It's like not easy to just categorize and mm-hmm. drop into a genre. So like how would you describe it to someone who you were just going to try and persuade to play it? Um, Make an attempt at a genre. <laughs> I would say it's an exploration game, right? Okay. It's like, or it's like, yeah, it's like mist with Mist for children. All right. Right? Sure. It's like the pu- the puzzles are uh, zero stakes, totally optional, and dead simple. Um, but it's all about just just rewarding you for wondering if there's something around the corner. Now, you mentioned Mist. I think, Matt, you were saying these guys actually went on to make Mist. Is mm-hmm. that right? Yep. It was published by the Miller Brothers, uh, Rand and... Not Rand. The other one. The other yeah, Rand. <laughs> <laughs> no. And not Rand. Uh, if you're listening, Miller Brothers, I'm super sorry about yeah. that. Um, 
Yeah, it was uh, published uh, by Cyan Interactive, which of course was their company, uh, and I think Mist would go on to come out. I think that might have been their very next game, mm. um, which of course really ushered in the era of of you know the puzzle first person puzzle genre, um, mm-hmm. as well as the advent of the CD-ROM. But I think that this game might have also been released on the CD-ROM back in 1989 if they they existed back then. Hmm. That could be. Um, I don't yeah. remember. Or it would have been a large floppy disk. I don't know. Yeah. Hmm. A quantity of those disks. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so it's sort of interesting because I remember, so when I was a kid, my mother would always distinguish between educational games and not educational games. Uh, and somehow Myst was always put in the educational games category hmm. Uh, hmm. despite not being an academic game. Um, and so I think that's one of the, the interesting things about the manhole too is that when you look at it, uh, it's it's not... It doesn't fit into a classroom subject. Um, right. It's not particularly academic, and yet uh, I can still, in my mind, see how you could make the argument for it being an educational game. Right. Well, it's a game that rewards curiosity. Mm-hmm. So if that's something that you think is good for kids to have. Yeah, I think there's there's some amount of critical thinking that gets surfaced, certainly. Um, I mean, it could just be... I'm trying to think, too, of like what the you know alternative games would have been at that time if this is just... On, uh, on generally just more wholesome content. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe it's not action-oriented. There's no fighting or anything violent going on. It's very on. accessible, Yeah, uh, which is certainly a prerequisite for, for good education. Mm-hmm. That's true, too. Mm-hmm. I feel like I don't, I don't know if it's around the pivot of Wolfenstein, but early games, it was just a much more wide-open field in terms of what you expected a game to do. Mm-hmm. That's true. And, you know, the the focus on relentless violence was a later step in the commercial game world mm-hmm. for uh, a long time. No one had any idea what a game should be like, so right. they made whatever they wanted. And uh, Yeah, it's interesting. I think you see that in, like, uh, like the, the regular Nintendo Legend of Zelda game, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like... They just drop you in. There's, like, no tutorial or anything. Mm, You're mm-hmm. just in the middle of nowhere to wander around. And I think there's some of that, like, exploratory spirit present in this game as well. Yep. My my dad made a a uh, perfect on-graph paper map of the le- original Legend of Zelda. Awesome. Like, stitched together pieces of graph paper with <laughs> every... So, yeah, Zelda took place on a grid, right? So, right. like, a tree was one square wide mm. and tall, so... I, I remember him like going to each wall, right? And you put a bomb down. No, you could you could tap it with your sword, and if it mm-hmm. made the right sound, you knew it would be bombable. Mm-hmm. So he was just like, "Nope, that's not a not a not a cave, not a cave." <laughs> just so not methodical. A cave. Yeah, <laughs> that was a perfect map. Yeah, Did that... you just go to your BBSs for that, Dan. <laughs> I don't think. I don't know. <laughs> Probably were they, were they image ready? Probably. Yeah, yeah. I uh, and that you know that takes me back to to like um, going to my friend's place and playing Mist, and him and his dad had a like a volume of notes because yeah. there was like a journaling yep. portion yeah. <laughs> in yeah, the that, manual. That book that game actually shipped with a physical notebook for the for you to take your notes in. Like yep. there's mm-hmm. no uh, you know I think if you were to release Mist today, there would be some sort of auto note taking. There'd be a wiki. Feature. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. Thank goodness there's a perfectly indexed arranged set of notes for me to use. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, all right. So let's talk about what people learn playing Manhole. What did you learn? Have you learned anything? Well, we learned a little bit of French. Yes. <laughs> and that's, that was actually kind of charming to me, just like how they were just sprinkling in factoids yeah. just to be like, eh, kids should know this, yeah. kind of. This is a movie. 
Yeah, here's mm-hmm. the moon. Mm-hmm. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is a good book. Yep. Uh, yeah. Flamingos sleep on one leg. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, although I think that relies on you to know that that thing was in fact a flamingo. That's true. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it was yellow. Yeah. Uh, I fl- do flamingos come in yellow? I don't know. We'll never know. We'll never. Yeah. <laughs> this we is should, impossible to verify. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that's part of it, right? Like I said, if 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 the manhole is a game about curiosity, it's nice for them just to put like little starting trails on things, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like here's like here's one snippet of French. Maybe you're into that, you know, and then you wind up finding more about French somewhere else, uh-huh. or oh, you think birds are cool, so uh, <laughs> you're you, one of those. Kids. You're one of those kids. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and you eventually wind up in bird law. <laughs> uh, it's you know, so it's it it's not trying to like cover any any one topic in any comprehensive way. It's just it's just sort of a game of pathways of interest, hmm. and they kind of wind around on each other. It's sort of interesting because I think that's one of what we we think of as a relatively modern. Uh, perspective on game-based learning, which is, you know, preparation for future learning. Like, the idea is that the game doesn't actually carry all of the weight for you, but it just sort of sets you up in a way to be more receptive to knowledge hmm. in the future. I think that's fair. In fact, I, you know, uh, there was definitely a time, and we were all alive for this time, before the icy grip of standards, like, came in and made school so relentless in pursuing very, very specific outcomes on very specific types of tests. And I think actually just things like re-advocating for preparation for future learning and stuff is just is, is kind of like the contemporary framework to justify mm. what we sort of knew about learning all along uh, in a response to uh, the rigid uh, the rigid conforming of, of, of teaching for, for the purpose of standardization. Did that get really political? I, don't, I didn't mean to. I just that's that's sort of like how I just say what you feel, man. All right, okay. saying what I feel. Yeah, that's yeah. what you feel. Yeah. Uh, so let's break down the game mechanics because I like what you said there about uh, pathways of interest. Do you think that that describes the core mechanic of this? Do you think there's other mechanics at play? Ooh, like mechanically, I, I think that the only thing that you really do, is, I mean, literally all you do is click. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, and there's not really any strategy to your clicking uh, in the sense that, you know, strategy is trying to achieve a particular goal or make a particular sacrifice in favor of getting, you know, someplace further down the line. Like it's mm-hmm. all very moment to moment. Right. Um, so it's not a, a particularly systems game. Um, there's not a ton of verbs. And uh, I think you're... I mean, and even your identity is a little bit ambiguous. I think you're like you are you, just as a, a passive vessel uh, right, to experience right. all of this until your dialogue starts, <laughs> and it turns out you have a very high pitched voice. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's good. That's a good recreation. <laughs> um, okay, so you know how does how do you think that like aligns with I don't know, modern game design. I could see, I think, like, a very current example for, like, how that, uh, th- for that kind of gameplay. I'd mentioned earlier in the video, like, Stanley Parable mm-hmm. uh, springs to mind. But um, uh, there's another game right now that's kind of popular on Steam called Hidden Folks. 
Are you guys mm, familiar mm-hmm. with that game? I'm not, actually. Yeah, it's uh, like a Where's Waldo, really lovely, illustrated, like, click around this environment and see what happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a great Basically, it's a, it's a hand-drawn Where's Waldo kind of thing, mm. and you just kind of explore it and click around, and there's there are a lot of Easter eggs, uh, as I understand it. I haven't played it myself, but I'm probably going to pick it up now that we played this. I'm intrigued. Hidden folks, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's not too expensive. It's on Steam and mobile, so. It's interesting, because Stanley Parable... It has that element, but it also has like a super uh, nihilistic driving despair mm, mm-hmm. around. A little bit. Right? It's like you can go anywhere in here, but you're still ultimately trapped. Right. Uh, and you you try and ratchet <laughs> up and down in like different types of analysis of the game to see where you have agency. And the game like denies it to you in... I feel like you yeah. just described our, our teacup boat riding experience. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That is true. Yes. You know, what's? I think what's interesting about that, though, is that, like, Stanley Parable is, like, it, like this game is, is still in this zeitgeist of, like, trying to fool you into thinking that the options are infinite. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, Stanley Parable is essentially a, like, a meta-analysis and an admission <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that game design is an illusion yes. and like you, you get this illusion of agency mm-hmm. um, which I think yeah we certainly all felt the pinch of as we went down that sewer over and over yeah. again yeah. <laughs> I like how now it's a sewer it's definitely it's a sewer <laughs> uh, whatever well, you know yeah. Venetian canal <laughs> yeah. I think an interesting connection to, to contemporary I mean there's there's two that come to mind the first is actually based off of a, a review from uh, back in the day uh from the section called Three Medium-Sized Hypertexts on CD-ROM from uh, Nielsen J. 1990, uh, which describes the manhole as an interactive fiction for children of all ages. I wonder if that's Jacob Nielsen. Who's who's Jacob Nielsen? Uh, From Nielsen Ratings, or Nielsen Usability. Anyway, sorry. Mm, Could be. Yeah. Um, But it it sort of uh, makes me think, like, in recent years, there's been the, I want to say, resurgence or... uh, maybe deepening of the genre of the walking simulator. You know, the idea that there's this whole Mm -hmm. uh, type of games where you don't have a ton of uh, strategic goals or, you know, complex actions to take, and it's more about going around and looking in the corners and sort of piecing together the parts of a larger world from, like, the little slices that you glean. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that this definitely feels like a a predecessor to a lot of those. Um, And... Maybe more abstract, because I think when with the contemporary versions of those, like they're telling very specific stories. You know, Firewatch is definitely the story of a particular guy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Gone Home, famously, is a very particular story with very particular moral. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know that we've ever talked about those as being educational games, uh, but uh, I... Hmm. I think they, I mean, they they more safely fit inside the, the positive impact mm. game, right? A game that has some kind of effect on you that once you've, you've played it, you come out slightly better in some way. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think that's actually where I was trying to go because I remember actually when I started at Filament, uh, the big thought around games, the power of games as teaching tools was the power of story. Like there is mm-hmm. a whole, a whole like genre of educational games, uh, Quest Atlantis comes to mind, where like... Right. You know, the narrative and, you know, at putting people in this environment uh, and letting them do things is what will make them make this a suitable learning tool. Right. And I've always been varying shades of grumpy on that whole theory. I, 
I used to be pretty anti-narrative. I used to because narrative is not unique to games, right? Like all sorts of forms of media have narrative. Um, so it's like why why use games to tell a narrative when you can use a book or a movie or a comic graphic novel like things that are like their bread and butter is the best delivery of a narrative possible um, I've since gotten better at seeing that narrative is a really powerful tool that is in the toolkit. Mm-hmm. I feel like we've talked about this at some point on this podcast odds are good still true yeah but it's still true mm-hmm. uh, um, but yeah, that that fascination with the idea that games are going to tell you a story, and it's still something I'm kind of like, well, that's that should be part of it. It can be part of it. It doesn't even have to be part of it, but uh, it shouldn't be the only thing. Yeah, and actually, as you're were, you're were talking, like it occurred to me that this isn't even really a narrative. In right. A way. You know, it's not like there's yeah. a. <laughs> I can't tell you what the beginning, middle, and end is. I can't tell you what the procedural beats are. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not clear on the politics between the dragon and the walrus and the rabbit. <laughs> right. And well, how they all. And the walrus coexist. and the rabbit are pen pals, at least. <laughs> we know that. Uh, and clearly, the walrus is really tedious. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's you know that's one of the things that's sort of. I'm looking at the notes you have here from these old reviews, Matt, and one of the things is they they talk about it very easily as an interactive fiction. Um, and they talk about your initial experience for the first hour or so. And I was like, I just think it's funny because I think that we really, we have been so trained over the decades of game now. Like we are so uh, set to pursue objectives that are defined by our game experience. And whether we fulfill them straightforwardly or subvert them is one thing or the other. But our literacy is such that there's like no way that like an hour of the manhole is even conceivable as an initial experience for us now. Like, right. You know, yeah. we're just going to barrel through, strip mine yeah. every single screen. <laughs> you proceed very aggressively through it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, whereas, you know, it, it, you know, and I'm just, maybe I'm reading a little too much into this, but it seems like back in the day, maybe plus with loading times, uh, <laughs> the idea is that you would have a leisurely stroll to this fantastical place. Well, and actually, I think it's interesting that you bring that up, Dan, because I would say that there is a way that the manhole would be acceptable uh, in its form today, and that's if you were to put it into VR. Ah, you know, uh, yeah. Yes. So let's so let's talk about that. What what do you think would shine in the in this experience as like as a VR uh, version? Hmm. I think. Uh, certainly, you'd get a better sense of geography, where which like from a, a purely purely mechanical perspective, like that was one of the, the biggest accessibility challenges I had is I wasn't sure if I was right or left or up or down. And there's so much spatial navigation in this, like yep. immediately you gain that and that lets you sort of, I think, plug in better and better access the content. Yeah, you get a little bit better orientation, probably. <laughs> yeah. right. Less ambiguity about- Are we up or down? Is this the same door we just came out of? Yeah, am I in a chess piece or a walrus's home? <laughs> yeah. Or both. Or both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. And also, you know, VR VR is in a similar place right now where the actual depth of interaction is is limited and a work in progress, right? Every every month we hope to hear new details about VR devices and their increased levels of fidelity for interaction. Um, but the thing that drives so many of the VR experiences now is, yeah, what are the what's the space you're in? Uh, you know, where are you and sort of what's what's happening? 
and the what can you do is always fairly modest. And that does fit the manhole really perfectly, right? Your, your interactions in manhole are like, I nudge this and it has an effect, mm-hmm. uh, which would be obviously great for VR. Yeah, and, I think. Uh, oh, go ahead. Uh, I think one cool thing that VR would afford would like the ability to look around and behind. Yeah, like you can look under a table. You could pick something up and look underneath it. Like mm-hmm. it would make, it would exponentially amplify how many interactions you could have and how many like places there are to hide things. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really. I mean, mechanically, we're not really. We're actually really close to something like VR accounting, right? Like the manhole. VR accounting are Go on. are very similar. <laughs> you wind up in different exotic spaces where you're encouraged to explore them. Okay. They have unexpected conduits to lead you to other weird places. Uh, you know, obviously the tone, mm-hmm. <laughs> the tone is very different. Uh, and VR accounting is uh, is is narratively driven that you get to a conclusion. Uh, now I'm not familiar with VR accounting. Is this oh? Oh, well. What are we talking about? Uh, Acquaint me. I almost don't want to ruin it. All right. It's, I think it may be one of the most, my most favorite things I've done so far. And this is something you can like get on Steam or? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Got it. Yep. It's, uh, I don't know. I, I know it's on Vive. Okay. I don't know. I, probably on Rift. I don't know. Maybe it's an exclusive. I don't know. Hmm. VR uh, accounting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't want to. Yeah. I really shouldn't say any more about it. All right. If you haven't. And uh, same, same to you, gentle readers. Uh, go play that because uh, it's a thing. <laughs> and with that, and with that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure people are storming out yeah, whoa, was, yeah. <laughs> to get a vibe. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay, so um, so for VR, you know, do you think this could work as like an like a classroom VR experience? Do you think this could work mm. in a school like? What could a teacher do here? VR manhole? Yeah. Um, if the answer is no, then the answer is no. <laughs> well, I think it, it, I think it actually sort of goes back to where I, I sort of wandered a little bit into uh, a little bit of the politics of the thing is that it would depend on how much that teacher is interested in just promoting curiosity as a mm-hmm. goal and mm-hmm. or how much is it they need to make sure that, that the kids know five different things about water quality by the end of the week. Sure. Um, I think that is sort of it would depend on the classroom and the teacher uh but the overall idea if if the teacher feels like a space that encourages curiosity is a thing that would be of value uh then that's I, what it's for shine huh yeah yeah final thoughts on on the manhole I think uh it was a pleasure for me. I was not sure, you know, when you go back and see media from your youth, you mm-hmm. know, like there's still some part of my brain that was convinced that Transformers was somehow good when I was a kid and they like somehow deleted all of those Transformers episodes and replaced them with terrible episodes. Oh, sure. But uh, but this is, is this one of those situations? No, this was actually nice. All right. This was nice and pleasant, right? And, and if you give it room for its, its out, you know, its age... Uh, and scope. I think that's you know it, it actually is really quite nice experience. Yeah, and what I think about like so my final thought is, uh, I think one of the cool things that seeing this this game played retro and also thinking about it you know in a contemporary VR setting for me is, I think that there's a lot of learning that 
might get overlooked uh, beyond the explicit learning objectives. Like when I think back to playing games like this in the classroom uh, in the, the early 90s, uh, you know, we were able to play a lot of commercial games, um, you know, just during computer time. And I mm-hmm. think that there's something to be said for making a tool that sort of implicitly teaches you how to use something like hardware or VR, you know, like, and so, mm-hmm. you know, when you're playing this in the early sure. years, like you're all of a sudden, you're building good computer literacy skills. Uh, when you're playing, like, a thing like this, you know, is kind of like VR training wheels today, you know, it's getting people familiar with the technology in a really safe and pleasant way. And so, even if it's not as on the nose with uh, water quality, for example, mm-hmm. uh, I still think that there is a, like, getting people to be comfortable with technology uh, hmm. really is something that digital games are in a, a unique place to do. You know, you can't make a, a card game or a paper test about, like, how to feel comfortable, like, right. you know, setting up a vibe. I think that's a really good point. I think, um, you know, right now in Common Core standards, you have you know, as early as third grade, a requirement to learn how to use mouse and key and, like, mm-hmm. understand how to click and drag and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would imagine when this game came out, you know, operating a mouse cursor mm-hmm. was probably a very new thing. Um, that, I mean, was that even a part of it? Like, the, we had a cursor in this version, but do you recall? Oh, yeah. Like, there uh, must have yeah, been. That was, that was 88, right? Yeah. Yeah, we were, we were in mouse town by then. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. But it's still, right, you're, a, you're in mouse... As a fourth grader, I was like mouse schmouse, yeah. but that's because I was raised in a <laughs> nerd, nerdly household. Right. I right. think for the general populace, those types of computer skills were still a thing that you need to get on top of. Yeah, yeah. very bleeding edge. Yeah, and what do you do? Like have mouse clicking lessons? You know, right. Like, I, mean, this, like, I mean, so something like this, I think, is just a really natural way to embody a lot of those those skills that we might take for granted uh, now, but you know, there's a whole new generation of, of students and technology coming out that I think could really benefit from pleasant interactive experiences that sort of embody, uh, if not explicitly, those kinds of teaching moments. Just some technical literacy stuff. Very cool. We have one final segment to cover for today. Yeah, we do. I'm going to put it in Dan Norton's capable hands. All right, so today's uh, outro is, is actually not quite a challenge outro like we've done in the, the previous ones. This is one that came up in a discussion earlier today with Brandon and I in a meeting. It was organic. It was organic. Mm-hmm. It was meant to be. Uh, so today's outwa uh, is arm. Arm. Yeah. And arm. What does arm stand for? So first, we're talking about arm as in terms of arm processors. So if you were to take your phone and pry it open uh, and, and, and break it, which I encourage you to do. You should do that. <laughs> Great. You idea. will find inside almost certainly an ARM processor. Uh, so, very small processors that do powerful things, and in, in lots of mobile devices and other other things. So, ARM is uh, the actual acronym. This is where it gets kind of. This work gets crazy. This, this work is all yeah. Spooky. ARM stands for Advanced RISC or RISC machines. Right, so that's the company, right? ARM is Advanced Risk Machines. So this is the first nested acronym, right? In the history of mankind. This is the first nested acronym in the history of mankind. <laughs> it's been extensively researched. No one has done this before. Um, so if we go down the manhole. Yeah, what does risk stand for? Yeah, we're going to risk. <laughs> and uh, risk is a reduced instruction set computer. 
And that one's actually pretty self-explanatory. Yeah. Yeah, right? It's, it's a computer that does a specific smaller set of things, which makes sense if you're going to put it in, like, a mobile device. They would be lean and mean. So how would you rate this rec- acronym? Uh, well, I think we had just the, the unexpected joy of discovering that the acronym had an acronym. It's true. Gives it, I think, a pretty good mark. That made my whole week. Right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Dear Diary, Uh, I'm writing to you from the manhole in Chicago. (laughs) Today I discovered the most amazing acronym. Wait, what's going on over there? uh, All right. So so five out of five stars. Is that five five stars? I'm giving it five stars. I it's like you know I I I want to hold back four stars all right. four stars all right there needs there's better acronyms to be found I'm confident I think I don't know I think I'm done <laughs> 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 this this is it for me all right <laughs> as good as it gets all right well that's the acronym of the week enjoy that nested acronym in your life hope it enlightened you in the way that it enlightened us. And that is all the time we have for today. So thanks again for joining us for the Retro Review. As always, it was super exciting and a little strange. Until next time, this is Brandon Pitzer signing off. This is Dan Norton. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Filament Games podcast. If you'd like to hear more about games, game-based learning, and what goes on inside our studio, subscribe today on iTunes or Stitcher. 